I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack and you can donate there or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links. And that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention. Travel the country to try to make amuse people, people. Yeah, and then I now I have a TV show, and I'd rather do that. But I still kind What's on of the TV show? have to do both. The TV shows it's going to be a um, it's on Comedy Central, and it's going to be. A comedy that takes place in 1902, so it's the Gilded Age, but it's like if the Kardashians lived in 1902, so we're just mm-hmm. these rich asshole girls. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing You'd now. rather do that of course. for now. Why? Well, first of all, you don't have to travel. be on and travel and do that all the yes. time. Yeah. And then it's also acting, mm-hmm. and you have a staff of writers, and it's just Gee, superior. why not? Right. And you get you paid someone, better, too. You have someone doing your makeup and your hair. You get paid oh, no. better. You get glory. You get billboards. <clears throat> yes, I can understand that. You have you have good fashion for someone in the um, spiritual, spiritual <laughs> in- industry. That's right. Because you know. look at Wayne Dyer. We're not recording, are we? Yeah, of course we're recording it. Oh, I don't want to make fun of Wayne Dyer, but he has terrible fashion. Uh-huh. He's got, he's, well, you know, you can have wisdom and terrible fashion. Of course you can. I think the Dalai Lama actually has very good fashion. I like his purple and gold colors. Oh, I've never really. It depends if you like that. Yeah, that he style. wears the, well, you know who, I met Deepak Chopra once at Chelsea yeah. Lately. I did a TV show with him and he had on like glasses with rubies. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It was, it was a lot. 
well, I went to Maui to do um, the Super Social <laughs> Sunday show with for Oprah. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're laughing about the I'm ruby glasses. I'm upstaging you. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. That's what happens there when someone says Super Soul Sunday to me. I understand. <laughs> but there, okay, the, so you there were, were several Super good Soul parts. Sunday. One of them was that we went early because you have to go very early to get everything all prepared and so forth. And then they spent like an hour in doing makeup and stuff. I'd never been made up that well before. And not only the, the woman who was making me up had been a model, and so she was gorgeous, and she made me look as good. My daughter said, <laughs> as she watched it, she said, Dad, what happened to you? You looked really great. Really? What did she do? <laughs> I don't know. And then my girlfriend, who was there, said, oh, can I get made up too? And she did, of course. And so we actually had quite a good time even before we got to the show. Everything's better with hair and makeup. Yeah, there we, there we go. And then, but then you look at all these monks and nuns as I lived and they don't have any hair and makeup. That's sort of the other punk end of it, right? Where you just shave everything. What do you think about that? I long for it. Is everything better for, without hair and makeup, too? Well, no, I mean, it's like, you know, you have this window of beauty and I mean, I guess you could imagine it lasts forever, but it's certainly a, it's it's a it's got, it gets you so much, but then it's probably harder when it leaves. Yeah, that's true. Or have you ever met someone who's older who's um, who carries some kind of light or luminous beauty yes. where? It's not the beauty of the youthful body, but there's like just something beautiful about their soul or their spirit, and you want to be around them, some grandmother or some amazing figure. So then you just have to find, express a deeper kind of beauty. That's true. And there was this, there was this uh, study that was done in London um, some years ago in which they took two streets in a neighborhood where there's a lot of crime. It was really poor, which is why there's a lot of crime often and very difficult, you know, living circumstances. Parallel streets, 10 blocks apart. And on one street, they removed the graffiti. They fixed all the broken streetlights. They cleaned and repainted everything. They planted flowers along there and kept them watered. So they made the street beautiful. Other than that, they did nothing else. And then at the end of the year, they looked at the crime statistics and the street that was beautiful, the crime had dropped 50%. Wow. Because we need beauty of different kinds, you know. Yes, that kind of external beauty is great, um, but also somehow we need to be able to see beauty. Aesthetic beauty. I mean, a aesthetic, aesthetic beauty. Aesthetic, aesthetic Aes and aesthetic Aesthetic beauty. and aesthetic, exactly. <laughs> All those kinds, every kind. Yeah, that's something that I think that's that's the thing. I know a lot of people who are obsessed with death and they're so afraid that they're going to die. And then I read this interview and they are right. They are <laughs> going to die. But I was reading an interview. Um, who's the woman who's in all of Woody Allen's movies? Oh, Diane Keaton. And she was saying she was they were like, what do you think of death? And she's like, I don't regard it. I don't think about it. I have no respect for it. I don't really care about it either way. Like, I don't give it any energy. And that was exactly how I felt, like, when I read that, because I was like, oh, because everyone I know is so, maybe because they're all, like, Jewish comedians, but they're all just, like, obsessed with their death, and I could care less. But I was thinking, like, getting old, though, I'm, like, terrified. <laughs> that seems so terrible. Well, staying with the death thing, I think it's Zorba the Greek in this conversation says, you know, to somebody, um, you... Uh, you live as if, you know, every day is going to be your last. He said, and I live as if I'll live forever. Or maybe it was the reverse or something like that. So you've chosen that I'm going to live as if I live forever. Yeah. And just, just be timeless and just live every day as it comes. Something like that. You said that in a podcast. You said you you, raise, you asked people how many people really think they're going to die and only 30% raised their hand. That's right. That's it. <laughs> and I would definitely be the—I don't think I would ra raise that, my you're hand. You're in that 30—yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're in that, that non-raising-your-hand group. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and being younger, we, I mean, I felt it. I felt like I was immortal. You know, I could do anything. But there was that little specter on the horizon— that I knew it would change also. Do you feel do you feel better each year? 
You're not that old. You look great too. Yeah, you definitely look, have inner beauty. Good, look okay for 69. But 69 is, you know, when I was young, 69 was like insanely old, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah 40 was insanely That's old. That's right. 40 was insane. Those were old people. In fact, people who were 30 were old people. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what did you ask? Is it, am I okay? <laughs> Are you okay? No, I said, do you feel better every year? Um, you have a girlfriend? In some that way. I do have young. a girlfriend. That's good. Yeah. No, I have a partner. It's wonderful. Um, a lot of things are better, but not everything. You know, that's the way you, human incarnation goes. Some things get better. Some things don't. And um, you get, as it says in the Tao, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And every cycle has some better stuff in it. You actually do get wiser, I think, often. Um, and then you get more foolish, which is not a bad thing. The Zen master Ryokan, Japan's favorite poet, um, wrote the line. He says, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. <laughs> and that, that sort of sums up our, at least one part of our human lot, don't you think? I love it. Yeah. I also like the humor that the Zen people seem to have. But maybe it's maybe it's all, I mean, is there a humorless sect of religion? Of course there is. There are all those dour people who make religion into a grim duty. Fortunately, in Zen and Buddhism as a whole, the point isn't to become a Buddhist or Zeni, whatever that is. The point is to become a Buddha, which is to say Buddha means, you know, to be yourself and be awake and alive um, and present to this world instead of kind of lost in your fears of it. You see it a lot in religious people, and I think it's. I think we're living in a time now more than ever that people just are so afraid of religion and the, just the idea of it. The more you can like, like I have a friend who's getting married, and he's marrying a born again Christian, but she's pretty modern. But her parents won't go to the wedding, and it just seems because she's marrying, marrying someone who won't convert. Uh huh. And these are close people in my life, so it's like it's. I just I don't know how to like. It just it, it seems so absurd to me, and it's it's like when you think about war, it's just like you just don't know how to like wrap your. It is head absurd, it. and in some, you know, I'm hoping in some decades or generations we'll look back and say, wasn't that a crazy way to solve problems? <laughs> I mean. Uh, we, you don't tell kids who are in the preschool and they're hitting one another with the block. Well, you know, go and get something bigger and really whack that kid. You <laughs> say, like, use your words, right? And it's not very complicated. Um, human so, beings, it's about time. So maybe we are evolving because when you think about like separate water fountains for black people, it wasn't even that long ago. That's right. And I think, like, if that were happening today, don't you... I mean, because, like, people like us who probably weren't... If we were alive then, we, I'm sure we wouldn't be instilling it. But why weren't we, like, throwing things over? Yes. You know? And people weren't doing that, obviously. I mean, they might have thought it was weird, but they weren't just, like, in an uproar. They weren't doing the riots over it. So what would you throw over now? What would I... If that were happening now, I mean, I, I well, don't... Well, it is happening. War, for example. Yeah. It's, I so mean, you should be throwing things over We're now. a warlike nation, the USA. We've sent troops out almost every year since World War II for the last half a century or longer to Haiti or to, you know, wherever it happens to be, to Grenada or to Iraq or to um, one place after another. Um, what a way to solve conflict. It's really sad. Yeah, it is. And everyone... It's a lack of someone, imagination. And why isn't someone like you running to be president? That just doesn't happen. Even someone like Hillary Clinton. I mean, I, I hope she gets elected, but also she doesn't seem like even like a woman to me. Like she just, she seems like a politician. Yeah. And the politician, I mean, I was just reading an interview of her in like the New York Times book review. And they, she was saying her favorite, she was saying all these books she loves that she's inspired by. But she's like, my favorite book is the Bible. And I was just like, she's just saying that. Yes. And so it's just like everyone is just so, and then maybe she has to say that to like get anywhere. And do we even, is she better than whoever? I mean, it's, it's, it's just seems hopeless. All right. So here we are, 2014, global climate change. 
We're living extinction. in a time where we're going to see extinction, extinction of species, rising seas, continuing warfare, continuing racism, together with this explosion of modern technology and science. And people think, well, if we have more internet and more nanotechnology and more biotechnology and more spaceships and things like that, it will save us from war and racism and climate disruption. But it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, because those outer developments have to be matched by a change in human consciousness. And no amount of outer technology is going to stop war or racism or environmental destruction unless we also realize that we're interconnected, that it's a family, that we live in a biosphere and the air that you breathe, you know, which came over and dusted the tops of Mauna Kea and passed over the Pacific and now comes into the studio in Burbank for you, um, will then pass on to somebody else and it's completely connected. And somehow we've been we've been conditioned as if we're still um, in some tribal culture or tribal way of living where the people in the next cave or the next little place over are dangerous to us. Um, and and we don't it's it's a part of the brain. It's like the early most primitive part. And we don't see we don't see with the heart. We don't see with wisdom. And yet. At the same time, it's possible. And religion sort of points to it, but unfortunately then it gets to be made a system and it, in the systems, often it turns into its opposite. Right, you can't marry, I'm not coming to your wedding. Yeah, yeah. And all that's based on fear, really, you know. But they don't think it's based on fear. They think we know what's right. Yes. And so, I just like how I know that killing is wrong, and you know that killing is wrong. They think they feel as strongly as we do about that that not converting to Christianity is wrong. Yeah. Or whatever the religion is, or whatever the cult is, or you know. So what do we do with people who are fundamentalists? What do you do? That's what it is. It's What's fundamentalism. Then how do you how do you how do you do what do you do with fundamentalists? Well, they're you infuriating. Yeah, they're infuriating. You could hate them. You could try to get rid of them. But politicians are fundamentalists too, because they're capitalists. Their bottom line is just money, and that's the opposite of seeing with your heart, right? Different set of values. And they they think that it's okay because they're like, well, it's for my family. We're we're getting all this money, but it's for my family. Like I've heard billionaires talk, and it's like in private, and I know that they justify it in their head because they have families. But it's still hurting so much and hurting so many people. Or it could be depending what they do with it. That's true. It's depressing. So what can we do? Anti-technology revolution? I'm not depressed. I know. I can tell. I mean, I could be, <clears throat> but um, one of the books, there are several that, I, that I've really loved. Um, one is a book uh, called Bury the Chains by Adam Hochschild, who also, sort of historian, um, bestseller, who also wrote a book about King Leopold in the Congo. Barry the Change is about a group of 12 people who met in a printer shop and a tea shop in London in the 1780s when slavery was the economic engine for the whole British Empire, enslaving people in Africa, dragging them across the Middle Passage to the Caribbean and Brazil to grow sugar, which was the oil of the time to make all this money for the British Empire. And they said, this is wrong. They got on horseback. They took people all around the country for 30 years. The guy, Thomas Clarkson, who was the head of that group, rode 30 or 40,000 miles by horseback. And he brought a couple of well-spoken ex-slaves into the living rooms of the gentry of England to talk about what it was really like. And after 30-some years, the British Parliament passed a law outlawing banning slavery in the British Empire. Because of these people's... Because of these people's work. Um, and the Quakers, who were quite involved with that, wouldn't take their hats off for the king. They would only take their hats off for God. But when Thomas Clarkson died, all the Quakers in England took their hats off. Um, so that's a, that's a hopeful story. Um, 
And as you were saying, there's a really kind of a, a hopeful book as well called The Better Angels of Our Nature um, by a professor at Harvard who's also a anthropologist and philosopher and so forth. And he catalogs the gradual decrease in um, child labor, in, um, the gradual increase of, in freedom for gay and lesbians, the, the gradual, although not end of slavery, there's still slavery in the world and there are problems with it, the gradual um, diminishment of um, the mistreatment of women, although there's still lots and lots of it. And if you look at all this kind of things that he lays out, he says, you know, things are bad and the world's becoming more conscious in humanity. And yes, there's fundamentalism and yes, there's all this. Um, but some part of our heart knows that there's got to be a better way. There just has to be. Um, and I don't even see fundamentalists always as as just that one side because um, there's also in that fear, there's also a kind of love and there are other dimensions to them. And if you can see it, if you can somehow see, well, Nelson Mandela put it this way. He said, it never hurts to see the goodness in a human being. They often act the better because of it. Not always, but often. And there's some kind of beauty in the human spirit that if you remember it or look for it or speak to it, sometimes it will bring it out. And so how can you, you know, sometimes you, you get that feeling, and whether it be in meditation or just in, for me, a lot of times it's just hearing someone say something that you're like, oh, right. But then it lasts for like four seconds. Like, so how can you keep that? feeling of expansiveness and that lack of, you know, like that you get so anxious, you know, like you, because for me too, and I beat myself up, like I came here, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to two Zen casts on my way here. I'm going to finish these two things. And then on my way here, I like just pulled over and got a cheeseburger and ate it in my car and then came was here. Was it good? It was fine. I mean... I, want, I wanted to wash my hands after, but I don't want to eat meat. Yeah. I wanted to prepare like, you know, so it's like then you like beat yourself up and then you just so much energy goes towards like what you your ideal of what you want to be and then like what you end up being. And so it's um, you want to, I guess, be happy doing in that world. If you can sit quietly after difficult news. If in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to a fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever's put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. <laughs> We have all these ideals Aww. about how we're supposed to be, right? And the ideals from our parents or our school or the culture or worse, from the advertising. Here's the airbrushed perfect body you're supposed to have. Here's the millions of dollars you're supposed to be making wearing the special wristwatch and sailing your sailboat at age 24 or whatever it is. And <laughs> all, that, all that stuff. Um, and then we have the same, we have these spiritual ideals. Oh, if only I could get it together. But that's not how it works, actually. Um, it works more, the idea isn't so much to perfect yourself, but if anything, to perfect your compassion and your love and to, to realize that this is human incarnation. And it forward and back, and sometimes your heart's open and expansive, and you're so touched. And then some, all you want to do sometimes, I just need to go sleep or veg out. And I remember seeing this, one of the most famous Tibetan lamas in the world. He taught this beautiful teaching on the realms of existence and these great tantric practices and these visualizations and so forth. And then I went to go and hang out with him afterward because I'm in the spiritual industry. So I get to kind of go backstage and whatever. And he was sitting with his feet propped up, looking at this wide, big screen TV, watching a football game. <laughs> and he didn't speak English and he didn't know the rules of football and it didn't matter. He just needed to veg out. And, you know, and after, he didn't beat himself up over no, that. No, he didn't say, oh, my God, llamas are only, you know, not at all. And it doesn't mean, I don't mean being self-destructive. 
particularly, that's a whole other game. And I think we do that when we're really hurting. The self-restructive is, it's really a way of expressing something that we can't tolerate inside. And so we, we add to it in some way. So I don't mean that. Um, but it's not really a self-improvement game. As I was saying to Duncan in an earlier podcast, you know, it's very easy to put spirituality in with going to the gym and dieting and getting some good therapy and things like that. And Scheduling it. And it's not that. It's really a lot more about mystery. And it's a lot more about being where you are, but seeing it with your eyes open and and when you're lucky with your heart open and and you know it's like when somebody has a an a, an accident or they have a, a scare and the doctor says you might have we need you to come in for a biopsy you know you might have cancer and then they get the results back no you don't it's okay and they go oh my god i love life that's you know, how I'm you should gonna... feel every moment <laughs> but you can't feel that way every moment but one of the reasons that people meditate and it's not to make meditation the be all or stop or just quiet themselves is to step out of all the future planning and all that stuff and just look around so that it's not about improving yourself but it's getting here and 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 seeing what's here and sometimes what you see is your grief oh i you know i had all this longing and it's hard to feel and so you sit and you weep my teacher one of my zen teachers said you know sitting and weeping is really good zen practice you know, it tenderizes the heart. And the poet Rilke wrote, he said, ultimately, it's upon your vulnerability that you depend, which is an amazing line. It requires a little reflection, but the truth is that we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable, as you said, to aging, you know, no matter even though you might want to look a certain way forever. We're vulnerable to one another, to how the person on the other lane driving the other way is driving. Are they paying attention or are they drunk? Are they going to steal and, just, you know, swerve into your car? We're vulnerable to the people who handle and cook the food and, and, and atmosphere and to the thoughts of the politicians and the people running our army and our government. Um, and to know that we're vulnerable brings a kind of care and intimacy to life. Um, you know, we live in a um, a culture that wants to kind of a security culture and a and a convenience culture and a protect ourselves. And if it's too cold, we turn the ace we turn the heat up. And if it's too hot, we turn on the air conditioning. It's a comfort culture. Um, but you're not always going to be comfortable. And you'll have losses, and people will die, and things. And how do you keep yourself, a, a, as a decent human being, as a loving person, through the tough stuff and the beautiful things that make up your life? And the thing is that you can, through the it, the same way you would learn any other art, through the art of tending your own heart and mind. What were you going to say? I interrupted you. Oh no, you didn't. I was just thinking. I was talking to a friend because a lot of comedians smoke pot. And mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend, and he was saying that he is trying to stop smoking pot. And he's like, one of the main reasons is it just makes me so comfortable. And he's mm. like, a comedian shouldn't be comfortable all mm. the time. Because that is that is what happens as you get older, too, and you have money, and you just want to, like, be... Like, I read this quote once. They said, um, rich people never like to be uncomfortable unless they're on a yacht. You know? <laughs> and, and that's kind of the idea, is, like, you don't want to ever... So then smoking pot makes you come. But then it's also you want to be blissed out. So it's it's finding that balance. I well, guess. there's different kinds of bliss. There's a bliss that's a bliss of denial in some way in which you're really running away. And Do you that think that's what get... pot is? Anything can be used or misused. It really depends on how somebody's using it. Um, but let's take what you said to a political level. level. James Baldwin, great African-American, you know, visionary, he wrote, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and fears so stubbornly is that they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so it's easier to project our fears on the communists or the immigrants coming over the border, or the Muslim terrorists, whoever's the enemy du jour, 
than to realize the fact that um, we are insecure, that no huge army, nothing is going to make you totally safe when you go out and drive down the road or something like that. And what matters more, much more is how we deal with one another. But in the same way, if we don't, if we can't tolerate the measure of tears and the beauty, the unbearable beauty and the and the and the brokenness that are both part of human life, then we get afraid and we project all the bad stuff on somebody else. It's them that's going to come and get us. The other, and so it's both a personal way of living in which you have some courage to your life and you learn it really, but also it's a collective gift because then you're not putting that stuff on, you know. Everybody else, as if they're the cause of, as if they're the cause of your safety or your unhappiness or something like that. Do you feel um, like your heart's open when you're in traffic and trying to get technology to work, and that? I mean, like, because I feel like so much of my life is made up of that, like headaches on the computer, and not things not working and loading, and and then traffic and then annoying phone calls. I probably don't spend as much time doing those annoying things as you do. So I guess I'm blessed or lucky in that way. I do have annoying things happen with computers because computers are annoying. They're also, you know, great, but they can be annoying. But um, I mean, that's a big question. How do we spend our time? And it's not always given that we can choose. You might not have much money and you have to go to that job or two jobs to support your kid or just, you know, and so forth. Um, but Nelson Mandela, in his way, you know, walked out of Robben Island prison after 27 years with his spirit still intact. That's amazing. Said, you can put your put the your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. You know, and I I was reading about a a, a, a Buddhist chaplain, a chaplain who works in a hospital, um, and once a year, one of the things that she does, because I just did a training for some chaplains is she goes around and she blesses the hands of people who work there. And so she'll go down in the basement or in the back rooms to the people who are cleaning and sterilizing things or who are um, washing the pots or cooking the food or who making the trays of stuff that goes out to people. And she'll just hold their hands and say, you know, you're doing things with your hand that are helping to save people's lives, that are tending them, and I just want to bless that you do that. And then, you know, there were all these little kind of comments like you get at the at the end of people saying, this was like the coolest thing that happened to me all year because somebody recognized that I had something to give. So, yeah, there's technology and it fails and it's a pain in the ass and you want to throw your computer out the window and that sort of thing. That's fine. Um if it takes over your life, then in some way, or if it colonizes your heart, then it's not necessarily a, a good move. But if your heart's not open to begin with, then it does just kind of become your whole being. Yeah. So but, you, is that true for you, though? No. I don't think so. Of course not. By the way, though, you have to be pretty confident to feel like you could bless somebody. Like how how... You know, like I, I would love to get to the point where I was like, "That's a that's Listen, a great I'm, comment." I'm, I'm not bless sure it's you. confidence. I'm not sure that it's confidence. It might be. Do you feel like you could bless yeah, but, somebody? Right, well, let me ask you this. Because I kind of feel like I could, but you, I think I, think, I'm... I absolutely think you could. Listen, I think you could. I think we're doing it all the time. But you know, you're going to go to your friend's wedding, right? And I performed weddings at different times as a priest and so forth. And one of the things that I do is I'll make a bowl full of water with flowers on the top um, that put I put up by the bride and groom. And then so that it's not just a sort of re ritual reception line, congratulations, I'll invite the, the dozen or 15 closest people to come up and dip uh, some roses into that bowl of, of blessing water. And then I have the couple hold their hands and and to take that wand of flowers with water from the blessing bowl and put it on their hands and offer them a blessing or a prayer. And sometimes it's the most beautiful thing. People who've never blessed anybody in their whole life come up and they look at this couple who they love. They're there because it's a wedding that they're invited to and they wish them well. And they say all these cool, beautiful things because they're invited to bless. So I think we have it in us to do it. And again, what spiritual 
practice is about in some way is making the time so that these things that are part of your soul that want to come out can do it. And sometimes it's in the in the beautiful way, and sometimes it's in a, a way where you show up for things that are terrible and tragic, and you still have to show up. So working with um, some friends of mine at different points who work with kids coming out of street gangs. Um, the homeboy industries. Homeboy industries, some of those guys who I've worked with. I see them um, around. I see him um, painting the graffiti in my yeah. neighborhood. Or Luis Rodriguez, who's this great L.A. Latino poet who wrote My Gang Days in L.A., which was a bestseller. And he's very proud of it because he says it's it's the book that's more... His book is stolen more often from high school libraries than any <laughs> other book in America, which is a great thing for an author to say. But anyway, so sometimes, you know, trying to make a a retreat or a place where these guys who want to get out of the street gangs live in a different way will come and say, all right, we're going to do storytelling and mythology and poetry and martial arts and stuff. And they sit in the back with their hats turned backward and their hoods up and kind of like, poetry, man, I'm out on the street and people are shooting at me with a nine millimeter and you're going to give me a poem? You know, you got to do better than that, dude. <laughs> and so we'll say, all right, well, let's make a little ritual to start with because we can't begin since there are a lot of people in the room whose presence is really palpable who we haven't named. So we'll light a candle, put it on a table, and then say, would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed um, and put it on the table and just say their name? And some of these kids will come back and their hands are full of stones. Did you make this up? This, no. This is... I mean, this is a ritual that... I do a lot of work with ritual. Um, but no young person should have that many stones in their hand. Yeah. They shouldn't know that many dead people. And then they'll go and they'll put a stone on and they say, this is for RJ and this is for Tito and this is for homegirl. And, you know, and by the time it's done, there's a pile of stones or you know, gravel around this candle. And the room has turned into a temple because they say, okay, this is a place where we can tell the truth, where they're saying, all right, let's really talk about what happened. Um, and so you ask about can we bless each other. It doesn't take very much to make a little time and space. Um, it might feel awkward at first, but in some way we're also looking to offer each other a, a, a wish or a blessing at some time. What I love about this idea is that the idea of blessing each other is that, and ritual is like, why not make up your own rituals? Like, because I'm friends with a lot of Jewish people. I've been to a lot of Jewish dinners and it's all so like, it's, 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 it's so, it's, steeped in tradition and they've been doing this for hundreds of years and this is why we do this and then we throw this over our shoulder and then we sprinkle the salt and then the celery stick goes here and it's like it's kind of cool to just I mean that's cool too because you're remembering what it means but it's also kind of cool to just make up your own stuff and it's who says we have to good. stop making up our own stuff exactly well those were all made up exactly but now everyone's everyone's got well is this how you do it is this like the thing you're talking about at the weddings like you take a bowl of uh, water and the roses and it's like you just kind of, and some of are improvising. Are you improvise. And the, the thing about ritual, because we're talking about it, I mean, comedies, even stand-up has its own ritual. It does, you know. Of course. Uh, yeah, of course it does. You know the rules of the game, and it's a certain choreography and so forth. But the elements of ritual, rituals like this ancient language, even before we had words, you know, you shake someone's hand to show you're not holding a weapon or you bow, you put your hands together as oh, if that's to honor, why. to show, you know, that your hands are free from anything that might harm them or you bow and you honor. In India, when you say namaste and you put your hands together, the meaning is I see the divine, I see the spark behind your eyes of who you really are. Forget your, you know, clothes or your job or your role or any of that. I see who was born in there. Hello, I see you. Beautiful, you know, and then somebody else says namaste back. Um, and in the U.S., you want to ask somebody, well, what do you do? What's your work? You know, something like that. In India, they would say, well, which form of God do you 
like to worship? <laughs> That's the, the opening question. You know, is it Shiva or Krishna or Rama or Saraswati or Ganesha or something like that? But anyway, the rituals are so simple. You light a candle, you you make up something um, using earth or fire or air. You place a stone on a table. You pour a little bit of water as a libation. And all of a sudden people realize, oh, we can we can commune in a space that's intimate and present that's outside of time. Um, and, and that's what the time should be, the space should be for your meditation or for... And for your life periodically. I mean, all the other stuff is good, but um, you need to step outside of time. Well, that's funny because in I've been practicing this. They have like, you know, obviously the Shabbat they have in Judaism, but they mm. have a, uh, my friends are into this technology Shabbat. So mm-hmm. from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, you don't use any cell phone or computer. And the rabbi said, and, you know, I was like, well, can you, you know, what if I want to watch some movies? He's like, well, just the best advice I had about that was just do what you do, do what you don't normally do. So if you do want to do have like a Woody Allen festival and watch 16 Woody Allen movies in that 24 hour time, like do that or just as long as you're stepping away from what you usually do. And what they say in, in this book about Sabbath is that it's a place where it's it's almost like time. It's like a t- time stops. So you're able to just have this little space. And it's like spirituality in time that's just stopped. It's that that's what I like about the tradition is sometimes you know, they were kind of right about it. Well and most every tradition had a Sabbath, you know, for the Muslims Americans it's Friday. Don't. Well, when I grew up, which was generations before you in Boston, they still had the blue laws, which meant in Massachusetts that all business stopped on Sunday. You couldn't go to a store and buy it. You can go shopping. I wish it was like that. Yeah, of course. Of course. And Gandhi took one day a week in silence, even in the middle of bringing down the British Empire and hundreds of thousands of people are marching and getting jailed and people are dying. And he said, I'm sorry, Thursday's my silent day. And they said, but Gandhiji, <laughs> we need you to lead us. He said, I will lead you on Friday, you know, but Thursday I have to get quiet and listen so that what I do can come from a place of love or purity or the, the best intention that I can find. Um, I have to do that. And then what you do comes from a different place. The the question someone said is not the future of humanity, but the presence or the connection with eternity. That can we step out of time and realize that we're being twirled around the you know Milky Way galaxy every 240 million years on our little rock of the Earth and and um, cycling around the sun in this way. And as uh, everybody knows that Ojibwe Indian saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And that there's some moment where you breathe and you say, ah, here we are, human incarnation. What do I want to make of this this day or this week or this year? And you listen instead of just kind of being in reactive mode. Um, And that's as important as anything you can do. And also you get good comic material from it because the minute you really get quiet, it opens a gate of intuition and other things come in that's not just your thoughts, but they come from deeper places in you. Your art and your love and all those things come from other other dimensions of your being. Can I ask one more question? Anything. What do you think about um, fighting against your own... Lethargy? Lethargy. Lethargy. You mean like laziness? Mm -hmm. You look like a really lazy person to me. No, but like this morning, I wanted to wake up at 8 and I woke up at 9.30. Yeah. How late did you go? What time did you go to sleep? Now we're getting into it. What time did you go to sleep? (laughs) One. Yeah. And did you need eight hours of sleep? I I do sometimes. Sometimes, though, I know that it's like, I'm, it's, it's not productive. Good. I think being not productive is a fabulous thing. We live in an insanely overproductive consciousness. And how about being? How about lazing in bed and then it was fun. listening to something you want to music? Back. You mean, are you, you have to get up and produce. This is the great American thing. You know, get back on the assembly line and make more, make more comedy. Come on. I'm so glad to hear it. That's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and mostly when people think they're lazy, it's not actually. Um, it's either self-judgment or it's fear. And a lot of people who feel themselves to be lazy are really afraid that if they do try to do something, they'll fail or something. So better not to try. And other times, it's just that they have this extremely strong self-critic. And one of the things you learn when you start to become mindful in meditation is about the judging mind. And it says, you're, you know, you're not doing this right and you're no good as a meditator and not only that, you're no good as a, you know, whatever else it you're is. You're not really doing it you're right. You're not doing that right. And not only that, you didn't do that right. And just think about that. And they weren't criticizing you and then you're not going to do that one you're right. You're fooling you, everyone. You, you, you have to worry. And so what do you do? You say, I hate that judgment. Stop judging. I can't stand that judgment. But what's that? It's just more judging, right? And I don't like the judging mind. All you can do is stop for a minute, look at it and say, oh, this is the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. You know, you kind of bow to it and say, thank you. And you know whose voice it is. It's not even your own voice. It was recorded in there. Somebody else and, you know, earlier, we won't talk about them or whoever it was that recorded that stuff. And you go, oh, judging mind. You say, oh, I saw the judging mind. I'm getting really good at this. Pride, pride, you notice that. Okay, <laughs> there's the judging mind in reverse. Thank you for that, too. And you get a sense <laughs> of humor about it all. And you realize, oh, you don't have to believe your mind and your thoughts. And then you can use it. The mind is a great servant, but a terrible master. And especially if it's controlled by judging and self-hatred and, you know... People are so hard on themselves. They have so little mercy, so little forgiveness. And it doesn't mean that, all right, then therefore people think, well, if I'm not hard on myself, I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to take, you know, all the time off, take drugs all the time, do nothing and just turn into like a bum or whatever it is. That's, that's not who we are. But you do want to be hard on yourself when you're entering an art form or a career. You do? Well, you want to, you know, like when I started comedy, I would keep a calendar and I would make sure I went up 20 times in three weeks or, you know, like I had a little system and I would record it and I would make sure like five to seven times I had to perform every week. And then I would record that's, that's it. That's beautiful. That's it's called dedication. Mm. That's called commitment. And no relationship. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have got exactly. good. No relationship with another person, no art, no nothing worthwhile um, gets done without dedication and commitment. That's different than this other voice that comes in and says, you're not doing it right, you're no good. That's the judging mind and that you don't need that. Dedication is different um, than all that kind of self-criticism stuff. Like, there's a, it's fine to be analytical and say, you know, that one was a bit of a bust because I talked all about myself or I didn't talk about myself enough or whatever. So you, or I knew how I should have worked. You yeah, know, like that's, you have that's, to be critical. That's called, that's called discrimination. That's discriminating wisdom. It's seeing clearly. It's totally cool. And what um, about, let me ask you this, though. When yeah. you're discriminating, what if you're also, because this is what also happens in art forms, you're like, well, that person sucks. And you and yeah. your friend talk about, you're like, yeah, their comedy is terrible. And you feel so bad when you do that. But part of getting good at something, I'm sure Picasso hated certain artists. Not that I'm saying I'm Picasso, but I'm just saying, like, you know, you have to be critical to figure out where you where you are. Yeah, there are different ways to be critical. One is to see clearly this this person seems to be a better painter than that one. OK. And another is to get really snarky about it. Oh, my God. Look at that. You know, and that doesn't feel that good. No. So you could say they're trying. That one didn't work. Their stuff doesn't seem to work. And, you, and here's it, why it doesn't work. Yeah, and then sometimes exactly. you're right. And so it is a form of figuring out. Yeah. And that's totally fine. We're always doing that. And that's a useful thing. So really, I mean, we're talking about mental hygiene in some funny way here. Mm -hmm. It's not that you don't have dedication. It's not that, but hopefully not all the time. I, you need a day or two a week where you and Gandhi just chill with your dog and, you know, and you actually let yourself be and you take a walk and you see what's blooming in your neighborhood, you know. Without and, checking your messages or returning exactly, calls or attaching exactly. emails. Exactly. So you do that so that you have that human time. Um, human time. That's yeah. a nice name for it. And then you also dedicate yourself, which is what you want to do. Some part of you, you're supposed to do something cool and good with your life. And so you dedicate yourself. You could dedicate yourself in a way that has a generosity of spirit to yourself and others. I'll do the best I can. I'll learn. I'll do this over and over again. Any good athlete does that over and over and over again until they get skilled at it. But I don't have to turn into a mean person in doing it. 
especially not mean toward yourself, but also toward others, you can be generous. And say, yeah, that their, their work doesn't work. It's not very mature yet. It doesn't work that well because of this and this and this, and it's fine. You can actually be gracious. I don't feel like I need therapy anymore. That will be uh, $125, please. Is this free? What makes you feel better? You'd made me feel better. You probably like to help. You're like a born teacher. I do like helping, so that's good. Um, walking down the street not too quickly is good. I have a friend who's a poet who said, I once walked the trail from my house to Kent Lake in four hours and 15 minutes. It's a long trail through the woods. She said, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> that includes time watching the lizard sunning on the rock and writing down a dream, staring at the summit of Mount Barnaby. See, so, now I can do that yeah. after I smoked a bowl. Uh-huh. Well, that's fine. It might be interesting to see if you could do it without. Not to say that that doesn't have its place, but also what's it like to just saunter down the street for no reason at all. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's the poet Gregory Corso who says, standing on the corner with nowhere to go, that's real power. You know? <laughs> and there's that's a certain because you're in yourself. You're not, you're not doing on anybody else's errand. Well, because that's the thing. It's every day. It's like when I was on the car in the car here, it's like, okay, I got to wait till I get there. And then this morning I went to go. I mean, I had such a cool day. I like woke up and like went to see my friend who like makes my gold. And mm -hmm. she has this like cool yurt and I wanted to show my friend her yurt. So we're sitting in her yurt and the whole time I'm like, okay, I got to go. I got to go. I gotta, you know, and then I get home and I'm like, now what do I do? I, I want to be early. And so I, I got to go. And it's like you're constantly having to like, you're not enjoying your moments, yeah. which like even when they're good things, I, I'm actually in, I feel present now. But like certainly this morning when I was at my gold dealer's house, it was, um, you know, I was, it was it just could have been a fun thing, and I was just constantly moving. So I think the idea of slowing down even just the pace of your walk can actually probably do a lot to your psyche. Especially when with when you're with your dealer, gold or otherwise. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> My gold dealer. <laughs> you know, she was making a present for someone. I don't really have a gold dealer. But... Of course. But gold is actually very cool. Um, you know, whether it's gold jewelry or other things like that, um, I think that it became precious, that it is precious because it doesn't tarnish. I love it. I, I shower with it. It's it yeah, always, it's, even when you don't have makeup on, you tarnish. always have, you just There's glisten. something that, so it's a kind of physical reflection of something that's outside of time, you know, and I think that's why the, you know, Cleopatra and the old Incan kings, and they, they had these gold things buried with them because it's something that doesn't tarnish. So there you are dressing in gold and diamonds. That's good too. So I'm and uh, foils. Yeah. I'm uh, you know, ready for I want to go. I want, see now I want to leave and walk slowly. Thank you though that was really fun. Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/jack Look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah.